Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. So I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Matthew Taylor to the podcast. Matthew is an associate professor of food microbiology in the Department of Animal Science. He's also a member of the graduate faculty of the Department of Nutrition and Food Science at Texas A&M University. He received a BS in food science, a BA in sociology in 2000 from North Carolina State University, master's in food science at, from North Carolina State in 2003, earned his PhD in food science and technology from University of Tennessee, Knoxville in 2006. Dr. Taylor joined Texas A&M in June 2007. Primarily, research interests are in utilization of mechanisms of food antimicrobials to inhibit bacterial foodborne pathogens. He works on natural food antimicrobials and um, conducts research and investigates uh, ways to make food antimicrobials inhibit micro microbial pathogens in food systems. His research is also looking into overcoming obstacles for the application and use of food antimicrobials in food products by encapsulation. Dr. Taylor is currently uh, leading collaborative research projects with faculty in departments of horticultural science and nutrition and food science and poultry science and even chemical engineering. So he's got a diverse um, uh, focus there. So um, lead instructor of undergraduate courses at Texas A&M in food bacteriology. Uh, he does uh, actively participate in the Institute of Food Technologists International Association for Food Protection, Phi Tau Sigma Honorary Food Science Society, Gamma Sigma Delta Society, and he's on several editorial boards of the Journal of Food Protection, Food Protection Trends, and provides expert reviews of food safety microbiology for multiple journals. And I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Matt Taylor. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me here, for being on the podcast today. Good. I'm glad you could make it. So, uh, so what are you working on these days? Uh, we talked about your bio already. You've mm -hmm. got obviously students that you're teaching and mentoring. How big is your program now? And tell me about yeah. that. Uh, so right now I have uh, four graduate students, uh, one PhD student and three masters of science students that are working uh, under my supervision. So not a, a huge program. Um, and we are pretty diverse in, in some of what we're doing, but the research really falls along two lines. Uh, the first one is uh, very, uh, you know, uh, very near and dear to my heart in my research, and, and that's the use of uh, encapsulation technologies to deliver antimicrobials primarily for produce right now, decontamination, uh, with uh, all the changes in federal law the FISMA, the produce safety rule, uh, and just, you know, uh, ongoing, almost ongoing reports of outbreaks and recalls or food safety concerns related to fresh produce. Our work, um, much of which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, NIFA, focuses on decontaminating produce. Uh, and then right now we are just getting started uh, on a big collaborative project that's USDA sponsored that looks at building biofilm repelling surfaces uh, for use as food contact surfaces, uh, you know, processing uh, conveyors, um, 
packing equipment, um, palletizers, anything in a uh, produce packing house post-harvest where biofilms could be developed and could cause food safety uh, hazards to contaminate produce, uh, the coatings, the surfaces the, that we're building uh, collaboratively are designed to, uh, they're designed to repel that and not allow that to happen. Working with collaborators, you know, like you said, in the biohorticultural sciences, chemical engineering, um, researchers, extension specialists, uh, very diverse. We have uh, an industry advisory group that we're putting together um, to continue to give us feedback on here are the data that we're gathering, how do we deploy those data effectively, uh, and then what are the data that we didn't think we needed but which have a relationship to what we're doing and we need to go out and try and capture. The other side of the program uh, is very uh, heavily focused on fresh poultry product safety mm. uh, as well as further processed uh, poultry product safety. We're engaged in um, a fair amount of lethality validation for uh, members of the poultry industry, um, particularly renderers of poultry carcass components. Uh, you know, those go into animal foods, animal feeds, and some of their components come back into the human food supply. So we're validating salmonella lethality for those. Um, and then a project that I'm also very excited about, and it's one that you and I have even worked on previously, uh, is a, a, a pathogen, Escherichia albertii. Um, we got some funding from, again, USDA to build some microbiological and molecular uh, diagnostic and identification tools. Uh, genetic sequencing is out there, genome sequencing is out there, and we're using those data to drive how we develop um, molecular detection systems, but also how we begin to define the parameters of a selective enrichment medium and a selective plating medium that'll mm -hmm. help not only with detection, but hopefully also with quantification. So those are the big things we're doing right now. Fascinating. So I want to have some follow-up questions first around the produce work yep. and then maybe talk about beet and poultry sure. or raw meat and, and salmonella and campylobacter, I mm -hmm. assume. Mm -hmm. And then we can maybe talk a little bit more about that obscure pathogen, Escherichia right. albertii, which I'd almost completely forgotten about until you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk about your antimicrobials and mm -hmm. what sort of antimicrobials and what encapsulates are you seeing uh, being most effective, not only on produce, but on the, what I thought was fascinating, the surfaces that mm -hmm. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So what we've seen be very effective, we've looked at part, you know, building different kinds of uh, micelles. So essentially, you know, nanoscale emulsions. Uh, and what we're loading in are a variety of primarily plant-derived compounds, either phenolic compounds or organic acids, mm. um, uh, blends, extracts. Uh, and when we encapsulate in micelle-forming um, materials, either lipids uh, or one we've been extremely successful with, a, a colleague of mine in the Department of Chemical Engineering at Texas A&M, uh, Dr. Mustafa Akbaloup, uh, brought to my attention uh, the use of polymers that can form micelles. Mm -hmm. And one of the great utilities we've gained out of that has been that these polymers form micelles that they release their payload uh, at a pretty well-defined rate. It's a pretty stable kinetic. Um, but the really great thing about it is uh, what we've demonstrated and published in some of our research has been that there's sort of two phases to, the, to this release. There's an initial burst phase, I like to call it, where you get a massive release of drug. Mm -hmm. And that takes 
a moderately high population of pathogens like salmonella and drops them down and then a slow release keeps them at low numbers slowly released mm -hmm. so what we're seeing from this encapsulation work and what we've seen and it, it kind of feeds into what uh, what we can talk about later is that uh, again you get this initial big release this burst effect where the micelles break down and the, and the, the antimicrobial is, is released onto the surface of the produce but it's not a the entire population breaks down immediately mm -hmm. and so you have this very steep release initially but then you have a slower more sustained release and the positive aspect of that is is that first you have a significant decline in the numbers of the pathogen mm -hmm. say salmonella or e coli uh, 0157h7 on the surface of the leafy green the smooth fruit like a tomato the netted melon uh, but then that slow release continues that selective pressure it continues mm -hmm. to produce inhibition so you don't what you're not seeing is a decline with regrowth over time what we're seeing and what our data demonstrate is a decline with continued suppression mm -hmm. uh, and that's a real positive for produce safety production sorry protection because we're reducing the numbers of the hazard agent and by keeping them low we're hopefully can we're hopefully what we're what our goal is to is to prevent the risk of those regrowing mm -hmm. which then translates into uh, a foodborne disease risk so. so it might be too early to ask this question I'm not sure how far along the development phase this is mm -hmm. but if if this were to go towards development commercialization if it's not a if there is a lasting technical effect what would this have to be labeled if anything that's a great question and it's not too early to ask we we have published some data but we haven't published the majority of our data we're actually working on trying to strategize development of publications for academic purposes but at the same time also look at opportunities for technology licensing uh, through the Texas A&M Office of Technology Commercialization. Uh, in terms of technical effect and labeling requirements, that is a question that I really hope the answer is very simple uh, in terms of consulting with our university uh, uh, legal experts, our attorneys, to say there's not a requirement for label labeling, but I don't know. Uh, of course, we would hope there wouldn't be one. The drug itself, uh, the antimicrobial, is, is a plant-derived antimicrobial. Uh, what we've used thus far has been S, uh, a component of rose essence, um, and it's worked extremely well. Uh, the encapsulating material uh, is FDA-approved, but that, as you know, doesn't necessarily mean it's not required for labeling. So there will be some discussions uh, with FDA, I'm certain, mm -hmm. through uh, and interpretations of current regulation that would inform uh, how growers and, and users of this technology would have to think about labeling. And you mentioned earlier uh, application to surfaces mm -hmm. like RPCs or crates or bins, mm -hmm. and you have advocacy data on, on those systems as well. Not for the encapsulates. What we have are efficacy data on um, coating materials that you would apply to those surfaces mm -hmm. uh, as a preemptive step towards um, use in the packing house. Mm -hmm. We have uh, some really outrageously uh, uh, good 
preliminary data that USDA NIFA has observed as part of our grant. Um, my colleague in the Department of Chemical Engineering also has put together some really outstanding um, video material that demonstrates the utility of these surfaces. Uh, one that I'm just blown away by is he applied the coatings to some plastics that are typical uh, in the food industry and then immersed those plastics into mud. I don't know the way to say it, just, you know, really nasty looking mud. Hmm. Uh, and on the coated material, it, the mud beads, much like water would bead on your windshield. Mm -hmm. um, it beads and it runs off. So there's the, the utility is that you're preventing soils from depositing and adhering. And so cleaning and sanitizing becomes much easier. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is the opportunity not only to prevent microbial hazards via biofilms, but we're also seeing an increase in the ease and efficacy of cleaning and sanitation in the produce packing house that we also, we believe will have a positive impact on resource use, particularly water, uh, by reducing the amount of water that growers will have to utilize for packing house sanitation. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really hopeful for is that not only are we protecting food safety, but we're also increasing the efficiency of these growers' operations and handling produce mm -hmm. uh, once it leaves the field. Yeah, it sounds like uh, multiple um, uh, ancillary benefits to the utilization of this technology. Right. How about for, uh, you mentioned meat and poultry, or at least poultry. Talk about some of the things that are happening in your research there. Okay. Some of the things that we're doing right now, we are working collaboratively with poultry processing specialists in our Department of Poultry Science to advance knowledge on some novel technologies, which uh, in one case was adapted from wastewater treatment industries mm -hmm. uh, that seeks to disinfect poultry carcass components uh, from salmonella by using uh, the marriage of uh, UV light with uh, uh, peroxides to uh, produce reactive species, reactive oxygen species, and thus attack salmonella and, and kill it. And we're seeing good utility not only on eggshells, which is uh, an issue, but also on, like I said, poultry carcass components. These are sometimes utilized in the manufacture of mechanically separated chicken mm -hmm. and mechanically separated meat. And there is a very high frequency of salmonella detection in these mm -hmm. types of products. And while they're still sold exclusively in the U.S. to manufacturers of fully cooked, ready-to-eat products, there have been outbreaks associated with these components in the U.S. In, within the last decade. So it's still an issue. These technologies help to reduce the salmonella load going in, which improves upon the efficacy of uh, full cooking schemes um, for these types of products. Uh, another thing that we're doing is um, due to... Uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act, uh, particularly preventive controls for animal-derived foods, sorry, for animal foods, not animal-derived, but animal foods, I apologize. We have uh, been working extensively to validate thermal lethality for um, rendering operations that render poultry carcasses and other poultry components. Uh, because as you're very well aware, uh, a lot of this kind of doubles back into either the animal feed industry, uh, some of it may go into the pet food industry, um, some of it may even produce byproducts that go back into the human food industry. And so we've collaborated uh, with um, 
research sponsoring organizations like the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association, worked with corporate um, uh, collaborators, corporate supporters to get uh, validation data developed and then into their hands to help them with their FSMA compliance needs. Okay. That's great. All of those things are of great interest to industry. I can yeah. tell you, uh, one of the things that piqued my interest personally, because I have clients in this field, in the space of uh, poultry production mm-hmm. and um, parts and grounds, and now that here in the U.S., the FSIS is categorizing mm-hmm. poultry processing facilities based upon their uh, incidence of salmonella in ground poultry or in parts mm-hmm. and and trimmings and such. So, um, yeah, any kind of technologies, not only to not only to reduce salmonella and campylobacter uh, for ultimate pasteurization cooking or further processing, but also just the round, the, the raw ground product itself. Mm-hmm. There are, as you alluded to, outbreaks that have occurred from cross-contamination or undercooking. Definitely. And so these technologies, some of them, um, some of what we're working on is, is pretty industry specific and there isn't necessarily broad application potential either due to regulatory constraints or due to the impact on organoleptic properties uh, that would render that type of product not highly palatable to consumers in its native form or in its raw form. but when we're processing carcasses prior to their being manufactured or processed into mechanically separated chicken, the end product continues to go through more and more further processing. So uh, our impact is negated or it is masked or it is essentially non, non-significant given the amount of further processing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the goal is truly, yeah, to reduce the ingoing pathogen load, pathogen burden, mm-hmm. so that any type of further processing uh, is much more efficient at hitting performance criteria, performance objectives, mm-hmm. um, pathogen load reduction requirements, uh, mm-hmm. as stipulated by USDA, FDA, what, you know, what have you. Right. So I, I learned that you're not just Dr. Taylor, the antimicrobial expert doing research on encapsulated antimicrobials. <laughs> you, you're doing a lot of other types of, of yeah. things like validation of inactivation mm-hmm. and control the pathogens in other ways. Yeah. So. Yeah, the, the, my research program really has, um, in the last, uh, I'd say, four to five years, and, and I, I think the FDA FISMA really did a lot to drive that. Uh, it has taken on a new scope of uh, interventions, validation, assistance, and, and process development. We've um, collaborated, again, like I said, with um, faculty in the Department of Poultry Science, the Department of Animal Science. We've assisted in validations not only in poultry but also in red meat. Uh, we've done, I've, I've advised graduate students or helped to advise graduate students who have developed data that demonstrate utility of certain pathogen surrogates mm-hmm. uh, that then can be used uh, with industry members. So, yeah, the program has really evolved uh, and has taken on a new uh, element to it with regards to validation that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I joined the faculty, I never anticipated doing. Mm-hmm. So, What are some of the obstacles you're facing with conducting and reporting the type of research you've described? Well, one obstacle that is probably one that um, most of your uh, academic inst- institution-affiliated listeners would um, agree with is just 
declines in federal funding opportunities mm -hmm. and greater and greater competition mm -hmm. for the existing opportunities that are out there. Um, it's always a great thrill to get a phone call or get an, an award notice by the USDA or some type of other federal research sponsor. Um, but those are harder and harder to come by when we have um, you know, either the same pot of money and more people vying for it or smaller pots of money and more and more people vying for it. Mm -hmm. um, what we've seen is a real, uh, apparent, a real uptick in the number of persons, researchers submitting to programs like the USDA NIFAS AFRI mm -hmm. in food safety who don't come from the traditional food safety microbiology background. Mm -hmm. uh, and they take a, a different type of approach. And that's that's out. That's that's really great. That's outstanding when you look at the types of data they can generate and how they look at the question. But it does realistically translate into uh, a greater opportunity not to get funded. More competition. More competition from means you have a better means you have a better chance at at, at not winning the competition or getting funding, mm -hmm. and that translates into real concerns for faculty, particularly younger faculty, to build a program that's sustainable, is fundable, renewable, and is also. Um, Growable. I know that's not a real word, but you know, can grow and, and evolve as yeah. the hazards uh, continue to be identified. So funding is is always one. Um, conducting research uh, is also sometimes there are obstacles that are put in place by the university, mm -hmm. uh, and I realize that some of them have to do with regulatory compliance, uh, things like biosafety, which. I'm all for protecting the biosafety of my lab and the safety of my graduate students, but sometimes it's difficult to come up with strategies that facilitate resource-efficient research, but at the same time produce um, good biosafety protection. Um, and then sometimes our desire to train students from countries uh, that, politically speaking, may not be on the best of terms with uh, the U.S., uh, and so export control uh, restrictions sometimes lead us to not recruit potentially very good students mm -hmm. from various nations who might need real training and backgrounding in food safety knowledge to take back to their home country. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that training can lead to really good outcomes in terms of just on-the-ground diplomacy, but sometimes it can produce a real um, limitation in terms of who we can recruit mm -hmm. uh, and train. But we, we navigate around that as best we can. We work with it as best we can. Um, and we're still getting the work, we're still getting the work done, no doubt. Um, but it, uh, there are things to consider. There are factors to think through. So you are an academician and you are a researcher. Are you also teaching courses? And mm -hmm. and I ask, I guess I think it's appropriate to ask this type of question. Sure. What are your what's your take on things? You're now a tenured professor. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is your take on university in general? and specifically departments of food science across the, the U.S. or beyond, if you sure. want to comment. Uh, what I see in terms of other food science and, and aligned academic programs um, across the United States, uh, there's, a, there's a significant push to market your program and move your program into a wider space. And, and using the Internet, using online programming, um, essentially moving up with the times and, and keeping relevancy, uh, there's a serious push in departments across the country uh, to do that, to make programs more amenable to students' scheduling needs, uh, to recruit students from non-traditional backgrounds. So 
I look at online degree programs such as those offered at Kansas State or Michigan State. Uh, I think Washington State even has something online. Johns Hopkins has one now. for Johns Hopkins, I didn't know that. Um, It makes it more it increases the base of students from which we can recruit and get good knowledge to. Uh, it does sometimes also offer opportunity for greater resource management. Um, uh, Texas A&M, uh, Department of Animal Science, we've just deployed the first, the first um, fully completed version of our International Beef Academy. And as part of that, uh, I and one of my colleagues, Dr. Alex Castillo, did a course on beef safety mm-hmm. for um, beef cattle production all the way through further processed products. And, and that reaches students all over the world. And so that's a connection point we wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and we're moving and moving on now on campus. Texas A&M, and I'm certain other universities are doing this too, we are moving and moving more towards innovative teaching. We are supporting faculty with resources with dollars to go to attend teaching conferences, to learn new teaching styles. Mm. Uh, we're building buildings that have very different lecture styles mm. uh, in terms of lecture rooms. You know, The architecture and the layout of the room is, is very different than what maybe mm. you and I went through at our respective institutions. Um, and so universities are recognizing that uh, while the content needs to, off, needs to keep up to date, mm. the manner in which we deliver it also really needs to kind of come out of come out of the 20th century and, and update itself. Um, and so there's a great push. Um, I'm lucky to work at an institution that puts a lot of effort mm-hmm. and a lot of tangible forms of support behind it. My college does too. So I'm, I'm really lucky to be uh, where I am when it comes to that. But I think the big push that I see, like I said, across food science, across the aligned disciplines is moving our teaching modes and methods into the current uh, era maybe would be the way to the way to say it, mm-hmm. and then taking our knowledge and finding ways to get it out to as many people as possible, mm-hmm. and not letting geography constrain us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of adult learning is happening too. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, the International Beef, uh, the International Beef Cattle Academy. Academy. Yeah. Yes. It's, so that's adult learning. That's people mm-hmm. that are working and coming back and getting right. training. And yeah, okay. these are members of the beef industry and they run the gamut from beef cattle production um, genetics and breeding mm-hmm. uh, even meats harvest fresh meats harvest and further processing mm-hmm. uh, we've had participants in this first run from the u.s as well as brazil um, other countries in latin america um, australia uh, caribbean uh, and so they've come from all over the world uh, to get either a refresher on the current knowledge or to build up their knowledge base in other areas of beef cattle and beef products that mm-hmm. they're not day in and day out focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we'll get ready and make some improvements off of this first run. And mm-hmm. Drs. Castillo and I have already identified some things that, hey, we really need to, we need to work on that. We need to enhance that. We need to strengthen that, mm-hmm. uh, that component and then work on a little bit on this component so that the second time around, you know, hopefully it gets better. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're learning from what, you know, we're learning from what we did the first time and what went really well and what didn't go so well. So, Excellent. Yeah. So, Dr. Taylor, what do you see as the future of food safety? What, what do you think, where, where do you think things are headed? Well, I think in, particularly in the fresh produce space, um, as the final rule for produce safety is now 
enforceable. It's, it's enacted. Uh, but we continue to see the FDA work with the Produce Safety Alliance and growers, state departments of agriculture, extension agencies, uh, all you know, other types of invested stakeholders. Uh, and we really see the rule come online in terms of uh, enforcement, execution, management, compliance, continue training. We're going to see an evolution of produce safety uh, taking taking place. I think we're going to continue to see more research on interventions, and there's already a massive amount of data out there on interventions for fresh produce, but federal lawmaking always does drive new research in order to gain compliance. So I think we're going to see more of that in the coming years. Um, I think that also means we may, as we're looking for it and survey, surveilling for pathogens perhaps more routinely in fresh produce production and post-harvest packing, we may begin to identify um, pathogens or hazard agents that were not routinely developed, sorry, routinely detected before because we weren't mm -hmm. as actively surveilling for them. Mm -hmm. uh, in the meat and poultry space, uh, poultry in particular, with what Undersecretary Brashears said last night in her address on regulatory update uh, and other FSIS employees have talked about in terms of changing performance standards, you know, the common new to products, uh, as well as a coming set of performance standards for uh, pork. Uh, we're going to see industries shift, uh, I think, in terms of how they respond to gain compliance, uh, either by working to stay in a certain type of category or just, you know, adopting new interventions or exploring new interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's going to be a big part. Um, I think the other thing that's coming in, some, some of it started to kind of come down the pipeline, is in, you know, USDA in collaboration with FDA and other researchers identifying what are the virulence markers for organisms like the mm -hmm. STEC, mm -hmm. Salmonella, which what is the combination of virulence markers that really predicts a high likelihood of disease? And how do you take those data, those risk functioning data, and truly apply them in a way from a regulatory standpoint? You're not so worried about serogroup or serotype or, yeah. or serovar or what have you. You're not so worried about identity match. You're really more worried about, is this the organism? Who cares what his name is? Is this the guy that's most likely to cause you know, a, a real serious outbreak of disease. Uh, and then I think, you know, um, from what we've seen and we've known to be the case is I think we're going to see other organisms um, through either horizontal transmission of, you know, the genetics that bring about pathogenesis or just mutations in the genome. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to see things pop up like organisms that you wouldn't typically think as a pathogen you know it, it, in the past we've never seen it cause disease or maybe just opportunistic disease mm -hmm. now it becomes a much more routine cause because it's taken on the capacity um, or maybe they're not any more capable of causing infection but they're far more capable of surviving processing mm -hmm. uh, IFP has been a great venue for me to learn about uh, recent evolutions of knowledge in how organisms are becoming more adapted uh, and more competent in surviving process interventions. Mm -hmm. So I think those are going to be some of the trends that we see in not only the fresh produce space, but also the meat and poultry sectors. Mm -hmm. um, further processing, uh, changes in the poultry industry, um, lingering concerns over, you know, organisms being named to certain regulatory uh, statuses. 
I, I, I don't know where that's going to go. Um, but I think if things do change from a regulatory framework, as you're aware, that always drives the development of new technology yes. in order to gain and maintain compliance. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you for that. So just to kind of transition and close out things, I'd like to get a little bit of background for some of the younger listeners in particular about your career. So if you could kind of share um, like how you got into this field, uh, some of the things you've learned along the way, and what is your advice to young professionals or students? Okay. Well, I never, uh, I, I, when I started at NC State, I did start in food science. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not intend food science. I intended actually polymer chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, my dad was a farmer uh, for his entire career and so had connections to the College of Agriculture at NC State and introduced me around to some people. And food science really was sort of the perfect marriage between my interests in biology and my okay skills at chemistry, Mm -hmm. okay skills at mathematics, applying math. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of gave me the way to kind of get through all those that I didn't like, but to get to the biology that I did, Mm -hmm. but to do it in a way that actually gave application. for a you know a 17 18 year old kid whose mom and dad mom and dad were kind of concerned you know is he ever going to get a job with this mm-hmm. gave great opportunity for employment um, I'll be honest also I never I never intended uh, academics uh, in terms of being in, at an academic institution I really thought that when I graduated from undergrad I was going to go join the industry mm-hmm. um, uh, but and this is both a, a sort of weird anecdote, but also a recommendation to your younger listeners. When I was an undergrad, I had the benefit of completing three summer internships with differing companies. Mm-hmm. And one of them was with Nabisco. Uh, one of them was with a very small, further processed poultry, poultry products manufacturer in Columbia, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the last one was, was with Cryovac, who you know makes a ton of packaging material for the meat industry. And... I loved every single internship. I learned new things, but the one thing that I took away from every single internship um, every time was a reinforcement that I don't want to be in the industry. Mm. Um, I didn't want that space. Mm. I it just The money was good. The money was great, but it was just a weird sort of thing that I didn't jive with in my head very well. Mm-hmm. And academics provided an opportunity to find another path and still collaborate with industry but not be subject to it. Um, and so I think my recommendation to your younger listeners is uh, kind of twofold. One, when the opportunities for professional internships or other high-impact experiences like field trips, uh, study abroads come up, take them. If you can take them, take them. Take that internship, no matter how big a company. I learned as much at that little chicken company as I did at Cryovac. <laughs> Because at that little chicken company, I got to watch a recall take place because of a food safety hazard. I got to watch HACCP in action, and I had no HACCP background at that point. So I got to see it play out. I got to see what little bit my faculty had told me about it really play out for real. Mm -hmm. And my eyes were open to it. And uh, that's part of what reinforced food safety for me. Um, But like I said, I took away in not wanting to be in the industry And so take those opportunities. That's recommendation number one. When you can, take them. Even if it takes you out of state, if it takes you away from mom and dad for a summer, it's worth it. You can come back. Mm -hmm. It'll be okay. But if you take away that you don't want to work in that sector of the industry and you know you don't and you can tell yourself, 
I just don't want to work in the industry or I don't want to work in this side of the industry. Yeah. That's highly, highly valuable because what it'll mean is later when those job opportunities pop up, if you know you have clear reason why you don't want to, you don't waste your time doing a job that you might be, okay, it's a paycheck, but you're not loving it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can find passion over time in a job, but if you start out hating it from day one, it's really hard, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, and so I was able to take some key lessons about how regulations intersected with microbiology and processing, and those, that opened my eyes. But just from a personal development standpoint, I took away just knowing what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I still recommend to my undergrads at Texas A&M very much the same thing. If you walk away not wanting it anymore, that's just as useful as walking away from the intern experience knowing you want to go further. Mm-hmm. So take it for what it is. It may not teach you what you thought it was going to, but it's going to teach you something if you're open to it. That's great advice. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for making the time to, to do this interview. I really appreciate it. I'm sure that it'll be of great value to the listeners. Um, just to close things out, how do people get in touch with you? How do they find out more about your research or what you're working on in general? Oh, great. Um, probably the easiest way is uh, email. Uh, my email address is matt, M-A-T-T, underscore, Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at TAMU, Texas A&M University, T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Um, you can also find me, you can search me out on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn profile. It's a great way to get in touch with me. Um, I have a Twitter account. I don't check it as often. I'm not I'm not that good at Twitter. Um, but LinkedIn, I'm pretty regular on. Um, but the email is probably the, the most direct way to get in touch. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, let me know who you are. Let me know what I can do for you. Um, happy to try and help uh, give guidance or, you know, if there's a problem that you're having and you want an idea bounced off. I'm not very good at ideas a lot of time, but I'm definitely willing to listen and, you know, offer my five cents. So great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.